Welcome to Gray Zone Radio on Pacifica. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal, speaking to you from Washington, D.C. Since it was founded in 2006, Twitter has emerged as one of the world's most influential communication platforms. Twitter might not boast anywhere close to as many users as Facebook or Instagram, but its technology has made it a favorite of political influencers, from lawmakers to lobbyists to world leaders to activists to alt-media gadflies like myself. With the power to shape geopolitical events, Twitter always presented a potential threat to entrenched and powerful interests, especially the U.S. national security state, which has feared that an excess of popular democracy could lead to a rollback of its power and exposure of its crimes and abuses across the globe. Just witness its persecution of Julian Assange and the campaign to neutralize his WikiLeaks. So with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, the national security state's fear erupted into the open, bringing forth the Russiagate hoax, which held that the Russian government secretly meddled in U.S. politics to get Trump elected, then escalated its supposed program of deepening divisions in American society by unleashing an army of bots and trolls controlled by the Kremlin onto social media platforms. At the Gray Zone, we were always aware of the national security state's attempts to advance the Russiagate narrative by controlling and influencing Twitter. We reported extensively on the collaboration between U.S. intelligence and pro-war members of Congress to push the cynical lie that Russian bots had successfully infiltrated Twitter and were able to make hashtags related to events from the Parkland shooting to anti-police brutality protests trend on the platform. We knew this was taking place, but it wasn't until late 2022, when billionaire tech baron Elon Musk bought Twitter and arranged for a select group of journalists to receive internal company communications exposing U.S. government pressure on the platform, pressure to censor dissenting voices, and to advance state propaganda that we and so many others who had questioned Russiagate early on finally got the hard details we've been seeking to vindicate our claims and our reporting and to utterly obliterate the phony narrative that was undergirding the Russiagate hoax. Many of those leaks were exposed by our friend, journalist Matt Taibbi, who's been inside Twitter HQ and who joined us at the Gray Zone for an extended conversation about how he reported the Twitter files and what their content said about the state of U.S. political and media culture. Take a listen to the first part of a discussion between me, my colleague Aaron Mate, and Matt Taibbi. Twitter files you've been covering, I think, have vindicated a lot of things that Aaron and I have been saying and revealed some new details that are uh, explosive and hilarious yeah it's hard to say which is which 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 is more right i mean sometimes you don't know whether to laugh or or uh be horrified but or 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 both but uh i I would say like the first thing for me was that it was just very psychologically um helpful because i thought (laughs) i was crazy for all these years and the first time i started seeing these files um you know in print saying all these things that I just that I think we all suspected um it was really a relief uh, so yeah um well bef- before we get into that and, and, and into the sp- specifics um including the latest thread which me and Aaron just find hilarious um 
I guess I wanted to ask you about the process by which you got these files and how you go about collating them and determining, first of all, what to ask for, what to look for, and what to report. So I, without being, without talking out of school too much about some of the arrangements that I might have had um, in terms of like attribution and think you know, that sort of thing, um, I didn't go to them. I, I was I was approached, uh, you know, by Twitter, and um, that was I was the first person, uh, and the basically the the original idea was just to open up everything that was at Twitter. Uh, um, the original story was going to be about um, the release of the, the the blocking of the Hunter Biden story. Now, here, here's where I should talk about. I, I guess my thought going into this whole process was: Wouldn't it be fascinating to find out what kind of a relationship companies like Twitter might have with <clears throat> you know the federal government if they are told by the White House to to or by the FBI to lay off stories that would be it would be great if we could learn that and so yeah. i picked i picked the hunter biden story thinking that that's where we, we might see it um if it existed um it turned out it wasn't in that first batch um and that was maybe because as we subsequently found out that batch was um, being reviewed by the deputy general counsel and former fbi uh, general counsel jim baker uh, plus an outside law firm. And um, once those folks exited the scene, uh, then we had a new regime that involved um, basically all there was there were some other reporters involved by then. and we would we would send out um, requests to an offsite attorney in the company uh, and then they would turn over those requests fairly quickly. Uh, so we can't say with absolute certainty what we're getting, what we're not getting. Um, but what I would say is my instinct is that they're turning this stuff over so fast that they couldn't possibly be collating it um, that much or, or, or that intently. Okay. Um, Aaron, but, feel free to jump in. Yeah. And just quickly on that, like the, the, these would be the, the way we would do it would be like a very broad search request we would identify four or five executives we thought we were were important executives and then we would ask for search terms like um you know russia or uh um uh, julian assange things like that right like yeah. we, we, we and we would see what would come up and then sometimes if something came up we would ask for to follow up on that and, and was anything off limits and also people in the chat are um, a number of commenters are asking if there's a way to release the source material the way WikiLeaks did. Uh, I, that's been discussed. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's that's a possible um, uh, ending to this whole thing. I, I think the concern um, from the company's point of view is that is that they still inherit the liability of the old company. Uh, so the, the lawyers right, in this situation, right. I don't, I don't feel for them. They're in a very difficult spot because they've, they've essentially been instructed to do everything that they went. They've, they've spent their whole lives being told um, not to do. 
like you know give important damning documents to journalists willy-nilly and um so that's possible but i think you know that's that that decision is a little bit above my pay grade i think right okay mm -hmm. so let's get into uh some of the latest threads matt which have to do with russiagate and just to catch people up on the story so far, because uh, Max and I covered this last week uh, on our Gray Zone live stream of what's been revealed. The short story is basically the files, the Twitter files reveal a lot of pressure on Twitter from Democratic Party operatives and U.S. intelligence officials to basically validate Russiagate, to come up with material that can uh justify the claims that Democrats and intelligence officials have been making that Russia is waging the sweeping social media influence operation. And the theme that comes back again and again and again is Twitter tries very, very hard to find something, to find these Russian bots, to find Russian actors being responsible for uh, misinformation and for uh, viral uh, claims, but they just can't find anything. And that is very frustrating to the Democratic operatives and the intelligence officials that are putting pressure on them. So the, one of the latest threads you have is about this, ha this hashtag release the memo. And that had to do with basically back in 2018, you have some oversight being done by the House Intelligence Committee under the leadership of Devin Nunes. And they uh, wrote a memo detailing serious abuses by the FBI in their surveillance warrant applications on Carter Page, who was a Trump campaign volunteer. And Nunes uh, and Cash Patel, who was working for him, basically discovered that the FBI was lying to the FISA court. It was hiding the fact that the Steele dossier was funded by the Clinton campaign, even though it was citing the Steele dossier as its main source for wiretaps of a Trump campaign volunteer, Carter Page. It also was lying about the fact that it hadn't corroborated any of the information in the Steele dossier. And so Nunes wrote a very critical memo about that. And for that, he was pilloried by Democrats and the media. And there was a hashtag called release the memo, which was basically encouraging the release of the Nunes memo. And at the time, you had something called the Hamilton 68 dashboard, which Max wrote about. Max, you can say more about this in a second. Basically saying that this release the memo hashtag and this criticism of the Steele dossier, that all this was really the work of these nefarious Russian actors. So you have now new information about how Twitter went and looked for some information to substantiate this and came up empty. So um, talk to us about what happened here. And if I've missed anything or got anything wrong, uh, please feel free to to correct me. No, that that's that's pretty much exactly right. And I think the really the really damning thing about this is that, you know, uh, Twitter, for the most part, the this was 2018. So they were already um, used to this cycle of being asked to uh, verify claims of uh, foreign interference. But in this case, it wasn't even like, well, we only found a few. It was literally, we didn't find any. Um, and there was a, uh, there's an incredible quote in there. And just give you, if you give me a moment, I can find it. This is Yoel Roth, uh, who is the head of trust and safety at, um, at Twitter and basically kind of the chief censor who, you know, had emerged as kind of a villain in, in this story because he was very aggressive um, in, you know, tw censoring uh, a lot of conservative material. But here he looks at the stuff 
And he says, I just reviewed the accounts that posted the first 50 tweets with the hashtag release uh, with hashtag release the memo. And none of them show any signs of affiliation to Russia. Um, And he talks about how I think we can push back very strongly on this. Uh, there's just one email after the other where they talk about how they're not fine. Not only are they not finding much, they're not finding anything. And they tell this to uh, the staffers. They tell this to Diane Feinstein's staff. They tell this to Richard Blumenthal's staff. They tell this to Adam Schiff's staff. And it doesn't have any effect. They just go ahead and, and run with this. They, they publish uh, public letters about Russian influence and then there's just an army of private media organizations, none of whom responded to requests for comment, by the way, which is kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> including and, your former employer. Including my former employer. Uh, and, and, and you know, uh, this was a story that only ever had one source. The source did not reveal the methodology. Uh, and everybody went with it. And, and and it spread beyond release the memo. I mean, I think as we all remember, it went on to things like Parkland shooting, gun control now. I mean, you know, they were blaming Russians for, for boosting all kinds of hashtags. And it was all based on this same ridiculous uh, methodology. Yeah, and here we have... Uh tweet by you as a result reporters from the ap to politico to nbc to rolling stone were used to write a column did a Mm -hmm. podcast with katie halper continue to hammer the russian bots theme despite a total lack of evidence and then you can see here um release the memos now the top trending hashtag among russian bots and trolls on twitter and other platforms according to the german marshall funds hamilton 68 website which tracks russian influence if I'm not mistaken, that's NBC and Ken Delaney. And so, you know, you can draw your own conclusions there. <laughs> well, for those, who don't mean, know, for those who don't know, Ken Delaney is the uh, NBC employee who was caught sending his stories to the CIA for approval before he published them. That's who Ken Delaney is. But Max, why don't you tell us about Hamilton 68, this dashboard that NBC was relying on uh, to parrot this claim that all of this was just the work of Russia? Because you've done a lot of work on this. Yeah. I mean, this was my hobby horse back in 2017, 2018, because whatever happened in 2016, it, this was so obviously absurd that right. Russian bots. By the way, in- right? <laughs> was, I mean, wasn't I, it so obvious? It was so obviously fake. And this organization comes out of nowhere, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which hosts the Hamilton 68. And it's said to be the German Marshall Fund's uh, initiative. The German Marshall Fund, first of all, is this organization that has offices in Washington and and Germany, and its job is to basically encourage Germany to be a bigger stooge of the U.S. and to be more warlike, but not in support of uh, goals that, you know, World War II goals, but more like post-war goals. So that's what they are. But there were other organizations that came in and funded ASD, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, USAID, which is a CIA cutout. Uh, you had Omidyar funding it. You had um, um, Cheryl Sandberg's organization. She's also very close to the Democrats. And you had all of these EU uh, foreign ministries sponsoring it. So it was obviously an intelligence front connected to the Democrats, kind of like a regime intelligence front. And they created this dashboard called Hamilton 68. And they brought in these researchers who were a collection of complete cranks. Uh, one of whom I wrote a piece about, 
2017, Clint Watts, after he testified before Congress that a Sputnik article had convinced people in Turkey to attack the in- U.S. in Cyrillic Air Base. It was a completely <laughs> fake, completely fake testimony. His whole testimony was a collection of lies, including some that were later discredited in a court case, uh, a libel case. Don't want to go too much into the details except to say Clint Watts is a, a giant fraud. Uh, his background is suspicious. His uh, And he was working with other people like Andrew Weisberg, who most people might not have heard of, but he is a veteran online harasser. He mostly harassed anti-war elements during the Iraq war, it would destroy their reputations online. And he was recruited to create the model for Hamilton 68 based on his Kremlin Trolls website, which basically took alternative media outlets and would uh, essentially blacklist them and give them a ranking of who is the biggest Kremlin troll. And that seems to also have been the basis or the blueprint for the proper not website, which you can mm-hmm. talk about. But anyway, all these f- um, sick figures and hacks came together <laughs> to provide all this fake research where they were s- claiming that hashtags on their their scientific looking dashboard hashtags like take a knee Colin Kaepernick's campaign in the NFL to protest police brutality and the oppression of black people were Russian active measure vehicles being pushed by bots online then you had people like Nina Jankowitz go out in the media and say the Russian bots are trying to divide us and pit our society against itself uh, so that we are politically destabilized and the whole media New York Times, especially the New York Times. I mean, that's the shocker for me that they went there. Um, they were feasting and- on all this Hamilton '68 stuff, and you would even have Senator Senator James Lankford, Republican uh, Uniparty Senator from South Carolina. He he was featured qu- quoted in one of the first paragraphs of a front page New York Times story, claiming that take the knee and the park and some hashtag related to the Parkland shooting were. Russian active measures that Russian bots were behind these. But Matt, as you exposed here in the in this thread, the whole thing was made up. It was completely made up. Yeah, and and Twitter executives had a lot to say about Hamilton 68. There's a lot of internal dialogue about like we need to have a strategy yeah. about uh, Hamilton 68. Um, there, there's there's a section where one of their senior communications officials um, talks about. Hamilton 68. I can, I'm going to squint here for a moment while I read it off the screen. But um, I'm looking a, for it. It's a long thread. Essentially, it says Hamilton 68 uh, does not release the accounts that make uh, make up their dashboard, so no one can verify the accounts um, they include are in fact Russian automated yeah. accounts. Uh, I encourage, and then, and then there's, this is like an off the record guidance to reporters. I encourage you to be skeptical of Hamilton 68. Uh, and their take on this, which, as far as I can tell, is the only source on this story. Uh, so think about this. They had to have told this to any reporter who called, and there were dozens of print stories about this. And, and I mean, basically, I was every- one of those reporters, by the way. Oh, um, oh, excellent. Uh, what did they tell you? She, Emily Horn, told me. Uh, Emily Horn. There you go. Yeah, that, that was uh, that was that was her quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, she she told me, uh, well, we think that, you know, this is kind of a gray zone. And she, I was also asking her why they were offboarding RT and uh, RT's uh, advertising revenue and, and basically transferring it elsewhere or like stealing it, 
basically stealing it. And so she framed this whole issue of Russian bots and RT as this kind of gray zone where they essentially can't be sure. And so they can't take any risk of uh, being infiltrated by Russia. And then she proceeded to tell me that she was a uh, former Obama NSC communications right. director, which was mm -hmm. kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she, she did have that background. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, there were a couple of White House jobs that she had. Um, but this but, is amazing. I mean, they knew they knew at Twitter that this whole thing was a fraud. As you can see, she knew it, even though she wouldn't and she wouldn't say so to me. Uh, but I could sense uh, a sort of nervousness. They, they So basically, Twitter never called this out in public. It would have shut the whole thing down. And then this allowed the senators, the Cold War Democrats, uh, Di Fi, Dianne Feinstein, Richard Blumenthal, um, I think oh, there were there were some others to continue to release these letters and to badger Twitter. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. There, there there were there were other um, other members who kind of piggybacked on the public statements of the first three. Right. It was Blumenthal, Schiff and Feinstein. Uh, but then you had people like Eric Swalwell who would like refer to it. Um, but yeah, inter internally, they were, I, I think Twitter made a huge mistake. You can see them uh, sort of baldly talking about it, right? This is a comms play by ASD. Uh, in other words, this is the Alliance for Securing Democracy trying to get, trying to get into headlines. Then right. they say things like, um, you know, Blumenthal isn't looking for, for nuanced solutions. He just wants credit for pushing on, uh, us on this. Uh, so they understand the whole thing is, is a PR ploy by all these actors. And they could have probably driven a stake through this early if they had given on the record guidance uh, to any of these actors, but they, they wouldn't do it. And um, this is a consistent pattern with the company. Um, often, um, I think they deferred to outside counsel. Like there were firms that they brought in. Uh, they they brought yeah. in also Burson Marceller, the the crisis management yeah. firm. They brought in Devois and Plimpton, Plimpton, the law firm, and they consistently advised the company to to downplay, um, you know, the sort of skepticism about the Russian interference thing, and instead to act defensive. Uh, and to and to pledge, uh, you know, further cooperation with authorities about this stuff, and that ended up being fatal for them because they ended up just in an endless cycle of answering questions like this. Yeah. So you highlighted a section. We take seriously any activity that may represent an an abuse of our platform. That's kind of their talking point. Mm. That's what I got from Emily Horn, and it's just blather. It doesn't mean anything. It's it essentially means we have to err on the side of caution. And we're being cautious of the state, the senators who are on an intelligence committee that's influenced by the CIA and of the corporate media that serves as their megaphone. Hi there, it's Max Blumenthal, your host at Gray Zone Radio. You can see more of our work and sign up for our newsletter at thegrayzone.com. That's G-R-A-Y zone. You've been listening to a conversation between me my colleague Aaron Mate, and journalist Matt Taibbi about Matt's riveting coverage of the Twitter files. In part two of this discussion, Matt will cover the direct role California Democrat and former House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff played in Twitter censorship 
including by demanding Twitter executives remove accounts that parodied President Joe Biden. I would say the most hilarious thread. It relates to um, Shifty Schiff, Adam <laughs> Schiff. I mean, this is amazing. Okay, this is the beginning of the thread. Just Adam Schiff ban request. So basically, Adam Schiff's office was behind a lot of this. A lot they were driving the RussiaGate related social media censorship campaign and putting in requests for Twitter to ban certain accounts. Which account did they want to ban? They so wanted last week that they wanted to ban the journalist Paul Sperry, who outed the name of the CIA official who was known as the whistleblower in Trump's first impeachment inquiry, who complained about Trump's phone call with Zelensky. So Paul Sperry outed him in real clear investigation. Right. So Trump want so so Schiff wanted him banned, and he also wanted uh, content, any content on Twitter related to an, a, a staffer on his committee. He also wanted that censored uh, because. He yeah, go ahead, man. Yeah, the, you can see actually lower in this thread. Um, th there's a uh, <laughs> there's a there's a quote about um, how far they went in um, in in asking for uh, you know for for uh, help with this. Uh, hang on a second, I got I, I want to find it because it's just such a, a crazy uh, thing. Is like, they'll just say anything is QAnon that they want to ban. This is QAnon related. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they said it was QAnon related. And, and you know, the, the logic that they use um, uh, for that is crazy. But they asked for, among other things, like the complete suppression of any and all search results about Mr. Misko, who is one of the staffers for uh, Schiff and other committee staffers. So they wanted sure. that. So this tells me that they knew a lot about how Twitter's um, visibility filtering programs work because they can do that they can suppress uh search results yeah and twitter um, twitter obeyed and said we are uh de-amplifying these accounts which i'm sh i'm, I'm de-amplified i'm sure of it if i were amplified it's like every time john brennan farts and coughs he gets eighty thousand likes he's like exactly donald, donald trump leads it his first tweet was like donald trump is the leader of a cacistocracy and it got like <laughs> 7 million likes or something he'd never tweeted before. And so. now what is the, what is the significance of this guy Misko like why would Adam Schiff want to have search results about him suppressed? Well, Paul Sperry uh, so he, he 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 allegedly had a re the relationship with Eric Cheramella who was the quote-unquote yeah, whistleblower yeah. in the U yeah. in the Ukraine affair. Yeah. And um there were multiple tweets uh, that came out that were basically Sperry reporting, um, but the the Schiff's office wanted any anything to do with Chiramella um, and or Misko's background. Look, there's reporting that Misko has a CIA background. I I haven't uh, confirmed that myself, but that's in some of these tweets. Um, so they were mad about that, but they were also mad about things like. Um, you know, you see, there's a tweet there. Uh, well, that's what uh, I wanted to bring up. I wanted to bring up this. Uh, yeah, go this, ahead. This, mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to bring up the, this one because this is this is the most hilarious aspect. So Adam Schiff basically wanted to uh, take have Twitter take down tweets uh, by 
a Pete Douche parody photo of Joe Biden. Oh, okay. This yeah, is like no, a I know. It's a funny account, Nate's liver commentary. I follow this account. And yeah, this this somehow upset Adam Schiff so much, this photo and this tweet. <laughs> and it's it really, actually I mean, animated. If you if you if you if you look for if you if you enter the 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 tweet, it it uh the tongue kind of moves around a little bit and uh it's even funnier. I mean, why really... the people of California elected Adam Schiff to spend his time <laughs> taking down tweets like this. This is right? a really top issue for voters. Yes. Yeah, there's yeah. a taxpayer resources going to this was on do it. They were doing this during office hours. Yeah. This is hilarious. Yeah. I mean, okay, here's you know the request. <laughs> yeah. DNC and, reached out to morning about a different tweet and the same image, but different. Yeah, uh, but so textual context, and it's it's like CC'd to all of these executives. It's this is yeah, no, it's like every out. every senior lawyer in the company had to deal with this. <laughs> um, and like a lot of people have, have been critical of the Twitter files in this project because they think that we're quote unquote cherry picking or showing only one side of things. Just to give you an example of um of how this worked. Like I, I ran searches for Yoel Roth, the lawyer Stasha Cardiel, who it turns out I think it feels like she was running the company. Like everybody seems to be deferring to her, even even lawyers uh, technically on uh, ahead of her. Um, there was a policy director named Lauren Culbertson. So I, I picked all the senior um, officials, and then I ran a search for DNC and RNC. Right on the off chance that. There were also requests coming in from the RNC to to get rid of stupid pages, uh, and it, it didn't turn up that like what you get from the DNC is just this pile of requests to get rid of mostly really stupid things like you know people saying you sh hey Republicans go out and vote on Wednesday or whatever it is right yeah um, but. You know, occasionally it's something like this where it's legitimately a parody and they have to take their time out and explain to the DNC that, you know, we don't do that. You know, this is this is like speech and they're not understanding that on the RNC side. I'm not seeing it. Instead, what you see from the RNC are these constant letters saying we're going to sue you if you keep doing this kind of stuff to us. So in other words, whether it's because. The, uh, the Republicans didn't think they, they would get away with it if they were if they wrote to Twitter um, or whether it's because there was a genuine difference in, in how they viewed this kind of thing. There just there just wasn't, you know, a flip side to the story where you're where you're seeing similarly stupid stuff coming from the Republican side. Well, the Republicans can't call on their buddies inside right. the building like Emily Horn or whoever who used to work for the uh, for Obama like. So what other option do they have? Or Jim Baker, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Jim Baker is a perfect example. And just yeah. uh, really quickly, I mean, you found, was it was it you who found the tweet? Show, or the, the, the file demonstrating that Jim Baker was presiding over uh, censorship and suppression requests from inside Twitter HQ? Uh, you, mean, you mean about the Twitter files? Yeah. No, that was Barry actually who found that out. Um, okay. So, so she was in the office, and, <laughs> and some employee she she asked about she had made a request about something, and she asked uh, somebody in the office 
hey, what's up with that request? And uh, the employee said, um, it's coming. I just got to ask Jim. And she's like, Jim who? And she, uh, Barry did a good job. She, she beat it out of this report, this, this employee, like, you know, the, a phone number. She calls the phone number and the voice on the other end of the line finally admits that his name is Jim Baker. And this is this is how we discovered that um, Jim Baker was in the middle of, um, you know, reviewing this material. Subsequently, they they accidentally sent us some other things that um, gave me a little bit more of a window. Like there was an outside law firm that was brought in in addition to Jim Baker. Um, uh, so that had a whole protocol for looking at this and yeah. um but there was kind of a bloodbath after that 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 was all found out let's put it and, and just for those who, for those who don't know jim baker is not the televangelist uh who is jim baker why is he significant he he was a former senior fbi uh, official uh, a lawyer who was general counsel for yeah he he helped push uh russia gate he helped oversee it and he helped spread around for example in the fbi that fake claim concocted by people working with the Clinton campaign that Trump and Russia were secretly communicating through a bank server, the Alpha Bank server. He was he was very played a key role in that. And then, as the Twitter files revealed, he played a key role in recommending that Twitter block uh, reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop story on the grounds that it could be a Russian operation, which Matt exposed in I think is his first uh, Twitter files threat. Yeah, he he he's in there basically saying, you know, we we have to exercise caution, <laughs> which, yeah. which in in the bizarre upside down world of of this Twitter mod, this content moderation world, really meant we we have to clamp down on a legitimate news story, um, and cause ourselves all kinds of PR problems. Um, that was what he meant by exercising caution. So uh, he had no problem. He had no problem sharing with his FBI colleagues a concocted story that Trump and Russia were communicating through the Alpha Bank server. He didn't uh, promote any caution then. But finally, when it came to factual reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop, let's let's exert some caution and uh, and ban it. He, he also testified that he was friends with David Corn, and yes. let's not remember so right. uh, that that David Corn was the the reporter who who uh, did the second major story um, about the Steele dossier, the, you know, a veteran spy, um, you know, uh, I forget what the rest of the headline was, but it was essentially that, that Russia had the ability to blackmail Trump. Yeah. Um, that came out on October 31st of 2016. So, you know, make of that what you will. The Michael Iskop did the first story in, in September and, Corn also so, passed. Corn also passed a copy of the Steele dossier to the FBI, yeah. and I I'll have to. I don't remember who it was, but it may be possible it was Jim Baker who he gave it to. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know the point is, Corn was so concerned about the contents of the Steele dossier and what they meant about a Manchurian candidate compromised by Russia that he shared it with the FBI. Yeah, something about that timeline doesn't quite doesn't quite scan with me because it feels like it could have been going the other direction. But but mm. but either way, you know, like some something's up there, you know. Yeah. I, uh, and so so he 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 landed on his feet quite quickly, uh, despite being under investigation for leaking um, at the FBI. Uh, there's actually a humorous sequence that I took out of another thread where. Um, it, you know, they, they had these industry calls with the DHS and the FBI and some other services, and you, you had to have a security clearance in order to be there. And um, they're asking Baker, 
where his is and he's like oh of course i got one you know because i was you know the senior lawyer at the fbi but actually he didn't have one because he was under investigation and he he kind of pulls this whole like oh somebody must have like lost it um there, there's I, i'll publish it eventually it, uh, it, it seemed like it would have been distracting at the time but he he he, he uh, was basically trying to to hide from his new employees that um, that he had had a security clearance revoked. Wow, <laughs> which is pretty funny. <laughs> it's Max Blumenthal, your host at Gray Zone Radio. You can see more of our work and sign up for our newsletter at thegrayzone.com. That's G-R-A-Y Zone. You've been listening to a conversation between me, my colleague Aaron Mate, and journalist Matt Taibbi about Matt's riveting coverage of the Twitter files. In part three of our discussion, Matt explains how the New York Times has refused to retract demonstrably false reporting alleging Russian meddling in U.S. politics, while mainstream media has ignored the Twitter files altogether. And we'll also touch on the role Russiagate played in setting the stage for the Ukraine proxy war. Take a listen. Wikipedia, as one commenter pointed out, does not allow any um, discussion of the Twitter files except mainstream media coverage. And Matt, how is mainstream media covering this? Because I have not seen it reported except by Fox News and then sites to its right. And how how is the the left, and I don't just mean the left by the Democrats, but the left, like the Jacobin left, that section of the left, how have they received this story? also there's there's two basic responses to this i think the left left um is mad at me for uh what they what they call doing pr for the richest man in the world um and you know and they can't get past that so I wish they would, because if they if they thought about it for a second, they would realize that this story is about people who are more powerful than the richest man in the world. This is the right. story is about major institutions like, you know, that are going to be here long after Elon Musk departs the scene. Uh, it's about the FBI, you know, DHS, CIA, NSA, you know, all these agencies and. It's you about know, the, the national security state where I mean, yeah. these are, these are sig- as significant as any leaks we've seen in the past few years. I think, you know, there, there are maybe more blockbuster WikiLeaks files. I mean, the cable gate was incredible. You're sure. looking at the inner workings, how the sausage is made inside the state department and the diplomatic services around the world. So they're running color revolutions and ops and everything. But here we're seeing how one of the most powerful communication platforms ever created in human history is being influenced by the state and people are like well but we already knew this that's like what i see with a lot of like whiny player haters on the professional left it's like we already knew this why do we you know uh or that's then that's one and then the other one is like matt taibbi's covering for the richest man in the world i i mean and again look old school reporters right well everybody knows that every source you deal with and every story that you do has motives and that's part of part of what you're doing when you're reporting you're kind of like negotiating the best terms that you can get for your readers you know and and your sources you know may not be in sync with you about about absolutely everything in this case i actually i i find myself thinking that musk is fairly genuine in what he's trying to do here and and 
you know, he may even have um, bought the company specifically to, to kind of set fire to the, the press consensus through something like this, which I think is kind of, kind of funny. So um, the opposite of why Piero Midiar bought the intercept to disappear it, the Snowden leaks. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. This, this, this was, this was like, uh, sort of informational arson, which, you know, as a journalist, I, I can't do anything but applaud. I'm sorry. Like that's just, the, that's in my nature, but the, the, look, the personal attacks, I think we all know that that's going to come, um, when something like this comes out, but it's, it, it's been a little bit surprising to me that there haven't been more people who, um, are at these organizations who are saying, all right, like we, we have to like, look at this a little bit, you know, let's assign our own people and to, to find out whether it's actually true that the FBI and the DHS are funneling tens of thousands of moderation requests, not just to Twitter, but maybe to other companies too. Like they have sources on this stuff. They can ask those companies. Um, and they haven't done that. And I, that, that's been a little bit of a disappointment to me, like, you know, the personal stuff, whatever, but you know, I, I find that a little bit weird. Well, well, on the left, yeah, go on ahead. the left, uh, you know, Max mentioned Jackman. They, they had a good article by Bronco Marshatich saying why the Twitter files are in fact a big deal. So that was one of the rare cases where I saw, you know, left this publication actually embrace what you're doing here, Matt. But for the most part, yeah, it's been silence or it's been derision and i mean my, my my favorite reactions came in the washington post and the new york times the two main establishment newspapers the the washington post initially described matt as conservative journalist matt taibbi that's how they described <laughs> you and then they got mocked so much everyone made fun of them that, that, that they did a stealth edit they took that out without acknowledging the change which is very cowardly and that yeah. happened before i even knew about it like i wasn't me complaining about it but anyway, well, on yeah. twitter all of us were just making fun of it because it was so funny and mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, and then the New York Times had this line about how your role, Matt, is controversial in media circles, uh, and they explain why. They, they say it's because you challenged the notion that there was collusion between Trump and Russia. And yeah, so that's why somehow you're you're a, they called you a polarizing figure because you dared challenge the dumbest conspiracy theory of all time. So that's been the establishment media response in the two biggest outlets. Uh, Calling that was the Washington Post. Yeah. The 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 yeah. line in the Times is kind of amazing. Um, I the, their whole thing was that my quote unquote fan base shifted because I was quote this is the quote I was skeptical of claims of collusion between Russia and Mr. Trump's campaign. So, like, imagine that. I'm, first of all, that turned out to be the right. You know, uh, a response, and second of all, you know, I, I think it's a window into how these people think because, uh, in in their mind, because uh, being skeptical of the yeah. Trump Russia story benefited or made happy Trump fans, that must mean that politically, that's what I wanted to happen. That 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 was my motive, um, and you know, you, you were all in the same boat. I, it had nothing to do with that. It's just like this, this, these stories aren't true. We can't report on them. Like I would, I would happily do this story if, it, if there was anything to it. Yeah, uh, you, you were doing your job. Skepticism right. is required of a journalist because otherwise you're just accepting official narratives on faith, which if that's the case, you might as well go work 
for the FBI or whatever political or party. Or Orson Marsteller or whatever, yeah, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you want to make money doing it, right, right, sure. you know. <laughs> well, the mean, reason that this all triggered me so much was that it was obviously part of a broader campaign that transcended U.S. partisan politics to grease the skids for the Ukraine proxy war. I mean, mm -hmm. there was the, the Russia Gate was generated by a convergence of Clintonite dead enders and cold cold warrior neocons and actual spooks like John Brennan. And some of them wanted to explain the way the 2016 loss or delegitimized Donald Trump. They were, you know, election deniers, but in a good way. And then you had the the spooks who have been trying to generate, to gin up a new cold war with Russia and eventually confront Russia militarily. And that's where we're at right now. And so much of the public was turned hostile to Russia during this period after the kind of ice breaking of the 1990s. And Putin has been turned into the world's greatest enemy. Now he's responsible for trying to pit ourselves, pit our society against itself through the Parkland shooting and uh, take a knee. And, you know, he's capturing all of our social movements and using them. So that's why this was so dangerous. That's why I was really triggered by it. That's why I think Aaron was and, and, and you as well. It's not just about, you know, scrutinizing an obvious lie. It's about trying to stop a war. Well, it's yeah, yeah it's, it's been massively consequential. Uh, Russiagate poisoned diplomacy with Russia. It uh, set the stage for the proxy war in Ukraine, which was going on long before Russia invaded to escalate. Uh, Trump was pressured to send weapons to Ukraine that Obama wouldn't send. And then when he briefly froze those weapons, he was impeached. And that was portrayed as a grave threat to national security, which solidified the consensus that we need to arm Ukraine and keep this war uh, going. Uh, uh, to, you know, as Adam Schiff said, we we aid Ukraine so that we can fight Russia over there and don't have to fight them here, which is a great, uh, a it's, great it's line. A, it's a great callback from, from the Bush years. But anyway, exactly. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And by the way, Eric Cimarella, uh, the CIA staffer who Adam who Adam Schiff tried to protect on Twitter, um, he was a uh, he served on the under the Obama administration and was very active in Biden's role in Ukraine after the 2014 coup. Very, very, very active. And so I think his role in Trump's impeachment for in which Trump was impeached after he briefly froze those weapons to Ukraine. I think it. I personally think you have to wonder whether he was motivated by a desire to keep the Ukraine proxy uh, war going and to uh, and to undermine Trump's decision to freeze those weapons, which it was alleged he did it to pressure Zelensky to investigate Biden, even though, as I wrote about, when you looked at the, at the details, there was never actually any, actually any evidence for that. John Bolton in his memoir says that Trump really just wanted NATO states to pay more for the weapons to Ukraine and not, not the U.S. Anyway, the point is, there's a huge tie here, as Max is saying, between all this and the Ukraine proxy war and what we're having, this disaster we're having now. Yeah. And it's funny because one of the first times, one of the first sort of aha moments for me was when Schiff re read the Steele dossier into the congressional record at, yes. uh, in, that, in those hearings. And one of the things that he talked about was this idea that um, that Trump had been given intelligence on Hillary Clinton in exchange for policies that de-emphasize Russia's invasion of U uh, yeah. of Ukraine and uh, and shifted the focus to um, the burden of NATO countries to pay their bills. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he, he, again, he, he reads this out into uh, into the congressional record and and, you know, 
as we used to be for fact checking purposes, if something had been read into the congressional record, we used to call that a fact for, for magazines. So that, cause we assumed that that had been verified. Uh, but I, when I, when I called up Schiff's office and asked them, what's up with that? Did you guys check any of this stuff? Cause there were some crazy claims. They're like, no, we're, you know, I, I think I told you this, Aaron, like they, 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 um, we look forward to talking with Mr. Steele. So, so yeah. you know, on live television, Amer all of America is watching them making these outrageous accusations that they hadn't even picked up the phone about. Uh, yeah. Which, which tells you, I mean, that was a, that's a huge red flag that <laughs> something something really serious is up uh, if they're if they're going there. And it and it's it's really important because it actually shows not only the just the horrible evidentiary standards of those who push Russiagate, but also again the direct line between Russiagate and the war in Ukraine now. Because this was right. one of the first controversies of Russiagate, and this is in the summer of 2016. So you have a Republican National Convention, and there's someone there who proposes uh, some language. An old lady, mm -hmm. an old like a loudy lady who proposed some language that wants to basically make the language about arming Ukraine more hawkish. Like the platform already, by the way, the platform doesn't mean anything. It's all meaningless. Like whatever the platform text says, it doesn't matter. But this happens yeah. at every convention. And so, so so this delegate proposes some harsh, some more hawkish language saying that instead of saying we need to send appropriate assistance to Ukraine to defend itself against Russia, she wants some stronger language about arming Ukraine. And then some other um, Republican delegates object to that. And somehow... This becomes this major controversy. Josh Rogan, the neoconservative columnist at the Washington Post, writes a column about this. And then shortly after that, the, the Steele dossier uh, has this entry where it says that, as Matt said, that uh, according to, according to Steele's sources, Trump has been promised intelligence on Hillary Clinton and dirt on Hillary Clinton if he agrees to uh, change U.S. policy toward Ukraine. And that became one of the early talking points of Russiagate. And it turns out that was just based it was, on and it. it was everywhere. Remember, it was like in every news story in the world, right? Yeah, it was huge. And just to show you what a fraud this was. So the idea that the Trump campaign watered down the Republican National Committee uh, platform to appease Russia and to undermine Ukraine. If you compare the final text of the platforms that summer from the Republican text and the Democratic Party convention text on the same issue of arming Ukraine, the Republican text is still more hawkish than the Democratic Party one. But that just got ignored because that was used to help promote this idea that Trump was beholden to Russia and they were undermining Ukraine. And, and now you and that set the stage for this climate in which to oppose Trump, you have to support a neoconservative policy on arming Ukraine. And uh, it let it helped lead to the climate where diplomacy wasn't possible. Peace in Ukraine was not something to promote. And here we are today. So there's a huge tie between that climate and the war right now. Yeah, ab absolutely. And that news story was one of the first that should have, that, that was blown up, right? Because uh, Mueller talked yeah, about how yep. investigated it and couldn't yep. find it. I mean, uh, Byron York actually did the first story where he called up everybody involved. Um, yeah. And he uh, got some great quotes from everybody saying, no, this was a normal process. Um, there was a moment when a Trump staffer entered the room um you know i think it was the second vote but uh the measure was going to fail anyway i think that was the that was the upshot of the whole thing i ended up talking to the same people that byron did and this was a fake news story it was it, and it was repeated everywhere like uh, it, it, which was just a shock to me i mean i, I guess i sh 
I should be embarrassed that I was already like deep into my forties and didn't know that this kind of thing was possible, but it was, it, it was, it was really bad. Like the, the, the sheer quantity of people and who were reporting. It also, shows, it also shows the feedback loop here because the FBI then used media reports about this as a basis for their investigation. So they looked into this and there's later on, there was an article about how, uh, the FBI opened up a second probe of Trump as a, being a Russian asset. This was authorized by Andrew McCabe after Trump took office. So there was the initial Trump-Russia investigation in July 2016. In the spring of 2017, with Trump in office, McCabe authorizes a new investigation of Trump as being like an agent of Russia, not just a conspirator of Russia. So you have two, actually, Trump-Russia collusion probes. And one of the things that McCabe based this on was media reports about the Ukraine platform change, which, uh, which puzzled which officials. Which came from, well. right, you yeah. know. Which, which came from Democratic operatives and steel. Exactly. So it's like, you know, um, so it shows like the evidentiary standards were so weak that a media report was enough to get the FBI to open up an investigation of a sitting president being a Russian agent. I mean, this is just it's insanity. It's absolute and, and, insanity. And, and not to date myself too much in this, but we, I think we all remember, you know, the how this was the same thing happened with the WMD episode where. Uh, you know, they fed the, the Bush Cheney administration fed Judy Miller and Michael Gordon um, a story about centrifuges uh, that uh, Iraq had bought and how they right. could be used to develop a nuclear weapon. And then the day after that story appeared in the Times, Dick Cheney goes on Meet the Press and says, oh, did you see the, the New York Times story? And so it was, you know, it's the same kind of... Um, sort of high school prank uh you know technology that they were using where they were they were generating a news story um based on you know this game of telephone where there's no actual evidence anywhere in, in it it's just a whole bunch of it's it's just the same story traveling to a, a bunch of different places and they did that over and over again with Russiagate and with with the you know sort of russian bots uh, Russian infiltration of of Twitter and Facebook and that sort of thing, and um, you know they they learned that they, that, that that was an effective tool, I think. And that's all for Gray Zone Radio for this week. I'm your host Max Blumenthal. You can see more of our work and sign up for our newsletter at thegrayzone.com. That's G R A Y Zone. This program was produced by Christopher Weaver. 